This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 57, here recording on July 15th, 2016. I'm your host, Tim Craig from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with my co-host, Neela Shaw. Welcome, Neela. Always happy to be here. Good to have you back. Good to be back. And Dr. Ryan Roberts. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And today we have a guest from that school up north, the University of Michigan, Beth Lawler. Welcome, Beth. Very happy to be here. Go Blue. Go Blue. <laughs> <laughs> so today we thought we'd talk with you uh, about your work, and thank you for giving for visiting us today and for giving us your seminar on your work. And as our listening audience knows, we like to figure out a little bit about you and your background. So we know you're Canadian. Can you tell us more about where you grew up, how you came to be interested in science and medicine? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, so I am uh, I am Canadian, that is correct. I'm a military brat. My dad was a pilot in the Air Force. Yes, Canada has an Air Force. And uh, I grew up all over the country. I was born in a town called Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Moose Jaw. Uh, yes, it's a real town. Nice. And I uh, went to high school in Germany. Dad was supposed to, to NATO base over there. And... Uh, yeah, Do you want to speak German? I don't. I'm embarrassed. Okay. <laughs> just a few words, but not not so much. And um, yeah, I just I was always drawn to biology in school, and I you know I was the kid who when the biology teacher showed the the movie of the open heart surgery, I was the one who was like leaning in closer because I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. While all my classmates were like, "Oh, that's so gross," I just thought it was fantastic. So I knew that I was destined to study human biology, human physiology, right from that point in high school, and then medicine was the next, was a natural thing for me to pursue, and it just kind of all that, the research came much later, that was not something that I, uh, I discovered until much later on. But the, the so you went right straight through to medical college and medical mm-hmm. school, yep. a residency, yep. and then how did you get into the research side? So residency, then fellowship, and it was when I was finishing my clinical fellowship in oncology, and and the the field of molecular diagnosis, molecular genetics was really coming to the fore, and I thought, wow, I really don't understand this field. I don't know it very well. I really should. This is the future. I really should spend some time learning about it, and uh, took advantage of an opportunity to work in Paul Sorensen's lab for a month, just as an elective, and was bitten by the bug. So you were in Vancouver then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you did you do your was this during fellowship? You did your fellowship I, years with him? Yeah, no. So I did it afterwards. Yeah, after fellowship. Okay. So yeah. So you really sort of t- went through all the training to see patients, take care of patients, and then and then went back into grad school. Back to grad school, and then stopped seeing patients. Yeah. And so you've been a, a, a basic researcher ever mm-hmm. since. Yeah. What, was there anything in particular that? Uh, inspired you to go into studying children's cancer uh, and Ewing sarcoma in particular, any mentors, any patients you ran into along the way? Yeah, I think it was, uh, I knew um, from my days as an intern that I was, because I did my internship in the days when you still did rotating internships, so I knew from that year that I really liked looking after kids. I, I just, I enjoyed the fact that 
They didn't whine unless they had reason to whine, whereas I found my adult patients would whine no matter what. They were more So I just loved working with the kids, and I and I. Um, so I, then, that, then it was clear I was going to do pediatrics, and then pediatric oncology um, just really grabbed me. Both from the point of view of it, it was a, it was the perfect intersection of pathophysiology and science, and because it's so complex, and the, and and um, but then married to this incredible opportunity to have great patients and law lo- and longitudinal care, you you become you become almost like a family doctor as an oncologist for the for these families because you take them through so many years and so I liked that continuity. And that so that drove what you were interested in terms of studying science. Yeah. How did you pick uh, labs to study in, and where did you have mentors that were role models? Yeah, so that was serendipity, but um, you know, right place at the right time. I, I, from a clinical point of view, I was always really drawn to solid tumor um, clinical work. I, I really, I felt that. Um, I like the age group. I like I like the sort of the the older children, adolescent age group, and so the sarcomas tend to peak in that age group. So that was that I was drawn to them. And then, um, as I mentioned before, Paul Sorensen was um, one of our molecular pathologists in, in, at the BC Children's Hospital at that time, and so he was studying the biology of human sarcoma in his lab. So it was just a natural fit for me to go and, and work with him and just sort of be there. You know, back in the day when they were still cloning. Cloning genes and you know before sequencing um, emerged and just and just being there at the at the fore and watching them discover these new new translocations was really great. Yeah, exciting times. Definitely, you know, you've had the luxury of of seeing the way that we approach these pediatric cancers change so dramatically over time. From from this, you know, we looked at it under a microscope and said what things were. So now we're getting into the molecular work. Mm-hmm. Our audience. Uh, is, is very broad clinicians, researchers, parents um, as well, and and we're hearing a lot of these terms. And the theme of your your talk today uh, was tumor heterogeneity. What does that really mean, and what are the implications for for our patients specifically? Yeah. So I think what it means is that not all. So so we sort of traditionally would think of you take out the tumor and all the cells in the tumor are the same. And I think what was very clear now is that that was a, that was a pretty naive assumption. And that within a tumor, a tumor is, is like its own little ecosystem. It's, and, and, and different cells in the tumor play different roles. And, and because of that, those different cells in the tumor are, have different abilities to respond to the drugs that we use or to radiation. And so some of the cells you know, for a tumor that's really highly responsive to, to chemotherapy, for example, the vast majority of the cells, and sometimes all of the cells in that tumor, can be killed by that chemotherapy. But it's very clear now that that's not the norm. What's the norm is that the chemotherapy will take out some percentage of the cells, and there will be cells that don't respond to the chemotherapy. And, and we used to think that it was because, oh, well, the cells just didn't get to see enough of the chemotherapy. And that's still, I think that that is still true in a lot of cases. But that's not the whole story. There's cells that even if you give them the same dose of chemotherapy, one group of cells will die and the other group of cells won't care. And it's that, it's that heterogeneity and understanding why and how are they different and, and how can we develop therapies that then will be successful at killing the rest of those cells that we missed. So what implications does that have then for, like, what, should we all be totally depressed? <laughs> we have no, hope of no, because I think it's, it's know your enemy. I mean, I, I think that 
what the way I look at biology studies right now is, you know, we had this incredible and hugely successful period of time in pediatric cancer research that we all need to be extremely proud of, where we saw survival rates go from, you know, zero to 70, 80, 100 percent in some of, in some of the, the cases of, of, of some of the tumors. Um, but then we kind of plateaued. And, and I think we plateaued because we didn't have enough knowledge. We didn't understand that there were these different populations of cells. We didn't understand how the immune system is being shut off in a lot of tumors. There's, we didn't understand about um, clonal evolution and different, you know, um, different genetic subclones in a, in a tumor. And I think that because of the insights we're gaining from all of this biology, now we say, oh, that explains why we failed. That explains why it has only worked 80% or 60% or 40% of the time. And so um, I'm encouraged by, yes, it's daunting, but at least we now know what we're up against and we can start tackling those big questions. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. So you've developed a reputation among those that you've trained as, as someone that people love working with. Um, when you talk to your students, and you tell them your vision for the future and what you yeah. hope that they'll go on to accomplish. What, what, what do you think the future is for tackling these problems that you've identified? <laughs> it's nice that you, that you say that about me, I, cause I, because I also have a reputation for being scary. Um, <laughs> That's exactly what yeah. I think when I think of Beth Waller. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm tough. I really am. And, and I think the reason I'm tough is because these are tough questions. And you got to be all in. You can't. You can't just sort of think I'm going to do this on the side. I'm going to dabble in this. So you've got to really commit to this, and you've got to really. But if you really commit to it, and you're and you're well trained, and I think you're going to make a difference. And so that's what I. That so when I, I say to to you know to all of them, this is the most exciting time to be in this field because I really think, you know, we plateaued for a long time, but I think we're about to see another another um, exponential change and, and we've already started to see it you know with the immunotherapies and melanoma I mean these are advances that we could have only dreamt about but now they're reality for some patients and so I think it's just the start of the curve I think we're I think we're the next 10 to 20 years are going to see major major advances and and for the students to be to be growing up into that time I, I mean I'm envious I think it's great yet uh, the immunotherapies which have had great successes. There's still a lot of questions about whether how useful they will be in pediatric. Because as you mentioned, pediatric many pediatric tumors have so-called quiet genomes, yeah. so meaning they don't have a lot of these mutations that create new antigens for the immune system to recognize. So, where do you think, in addition to immunotherapies for for pediatric cancers in particular, what should we be studying? So I'm going to get my bias on this, and I really think that targeting the epigenome is has a major, major future for pediatric cancers. Maybe define the yeah. epigenome yeah. for our sure. listeners. The epigenome describes how gene expression is regulated in time and space, in, in the sense that we all have that every cell in the body, normal cell, has the same DNA sequence, but different genes are expressed at different times according to the need. And in a cancer cell, you know, that DNA sequence can be mutated, but turning genes on and off at the right time is absolutely critical for a normal tissue. And cancer just disrupts that whole process. So you have, for example, you know, oncogenes that are, that are turned on and, and, and 
promote the growth of this tumor so that the cells just keep dividing and dividing and dividing. And that's because the epigenetic program of that cell is, is to leave that gene on. And understanding how that gene could be turned off and to pharmacologically target that, um, I think has a lot of potential. And there's already, you know, so there's um, genes being turned on and off by epigenetic mechanisms can be targeted with drugs that are already in the clinic, Varenostat, HDAC inhibitors, for example, DNA methyltransferase inhibitors like decidabine and 5 acetidine. We've just begun to scratch the surface with that class of drugs, um, and I think that there's there's a huge future in epigenetic targeted agents. It's not to say that they're not going to have side effects that we're not anticipating right now, and we're going to have to be very cautious as we introduce them into the clinic, but I think that given the fact that pediatric tumors are so exquisitely dependent on epigenetic changes and epigenetic biology, that if we can really zero in on how, to, how on targeting those pathways therapeutically, that has tremendous potential. Do you think they're that way because normal development is so dependent on epigenetic that's, changes? That's what I think. That's arise from abnormal development. Yeah, I think I really think that that is is probably the fundamental difference between most pediatric cancers and most adult cancers is that most pediatric cancers are arise because of hijack development and that arises through, you know, if normal development depends on normal epigenetic regulation, then hijack development is deregulating that. And I think that that's, um, I think that that's why these tumor, these particular tumors are going to be more, more susceptible to epigenetic therapy than perhaps an end-stage lung carcinoma. What's a little challenging to me is in an end-stage lung carcinoma, you might have a RAF mutation mm -hmm. that you can inhibit mm -hmm. directly. Whereas an epigenetic mutation, <laughs> you know, you're affecting thousands of genes yeah. up and down. And yeah. If you muck with that with a drug, you're going to affect thousands of genes up and down. And as you mentioned, normal normal cells yeah. use those uh, yeah. regulations to Definitely. their normal function. So there's risk there as well. Particularly in the pediatric population yeah. where development is ongoing. Right. Yeah. And I, but I think that it's. I think that this is why. We need to get smart about how we prescribe these drugs and not think about them as the way the traditional way we think about chemotherapy, which is let's get the maximal tolerated dose and then back <laughs> off a little bit and let's give it for you know as long as we can until their counts drop. I think epigenetic therapies. I think there's going to be ways of of targeting these cells that they're so the cancer cells are going to be so exquisitely dependent on maintaining this deregulation that even just interrupting that for a brief period of time might be enough to actually turn the turn the program, the cancer program off. And there's certainly some evidence in in the MLL fusion driven leukemias already that that's true, that, that they are so they are much more exquisitely dependent on these enzymes than the normal hematopoietic cells, for example. So I get an image of just turning off the light switch and putting cancer in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Wouldn't love that. Wouldn't yeah. that be great? Now? Yeah. And somehow we have to be able to turn on the light for all the other cells. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm going to get in the weeds a little bit, and yep. as uh, our listeners may or may or may not know, I'm a physician scientist, and um, I I humor myself by by describing myself as a developmental oncologist. Mm -hmm. Some of the tumors that we study, neuroblastoma, uh, Wilms tumor, it's very clearly those arise from from a very basal point because they happen very young children. Yeah. Ewing's is such an unusual beast. It happens in older yeah. patients. Yeah. It's so primitive. Yeah. We don't even know what it comes yeah. from. And so, here's here's my question: Should we be viewing it as an embryonal tumor, 
Or should we be, or is there that chance that it de-differentiated? Where, where do you think that, that is the right way to kind of view this? Because I think it does change the way that we, we view how to treat this as well. Because if it de-differentiated, could more of the cells do that in that patient? Versus is it something that we could, we can put a stop to? Yeah. So I obviously, as you know, don't have the answer. Because nobody, 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 <laughs> yet, nobody yet has the answer. But I can tell you what I really feel in my gut is that this is a stem cell tumor. This tumor, whatever, whatever age it presents at, whether it's a 10 or 15 or 18 or 50 or 5, this tumor arose from a stem cell. And that that stem cell acquired the genetic mutation at some point in your life. I don't know when you know did the stem cell acquire the mutation the ews fly one translocation refusion um before you were born and it just took 50 years for this cell to then be called in to be you know because we all have stem cells they're not dividing very often right and so so perhaps this stem cell with the ews fly one fusion is, is sitting around from infancy or prenatal life and then it just gets activated at the age of 15 or 18 or 40 or maybe the stem cell that you still have, we still have these in smaller numbers as, as older adults, but maybe a 32-year-old has a stem cell that at the age of 32 acquired this and then it develops into it. My gut is the former. I think mm. it's. I think these cells are probably there from the get-go, from very early on, but it takes years for them to be to acquire the epigenetic changes that allow them to fully transform and or that... The, the adolescent growth spurt, for example, which requires you to sort of activate a bunch of stem cells that were previously quiescent, and perhaps that activation of stem cells to allow your bones to grow, that one of those mutant stem cells gets called up, and then, then it just goes. What's odd to me is there's not an animal model. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, osteosarcoma, and you yeah. growth spurt, yeah. there's plenty of dogs yeah. that get... But yeah. there's no animal model of you yeah. and right? Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating question, and and um, a hair area of high contention. <laughs> there's a whole lot of potential explanations for that. Um, you know, Steve Lesnick has the is of the opinion, and I think there's probably some truth to that. That there's something about the DNA sequence in a human that is not recapitulated in, or or um, is not similar in in, a, in another animal. Um, and that, so that, that makes humans susceptible to EWS lowering transformation. Another argument, and the one that I, that I favor most is we're not sophisticated enough yet in how we generate animal models and that EWS fly one is a, incredibly toxic as a protein. If you, if, if it's expressed in the wrong cell type, it just kills the cells. And so it has to be expressed, I think, to form a tumor, you need exactly the right cellular context and you need exactly the right dose of EWS fly one and it can't be in all of the cells because we know that if you express EWS fly one in all of the cells it'll just destroy the organ and, and and so I think it's got to only be in like one or maybe one cell or two cells and you can't target a whole organ or a whole bone or a whole tissue and transgenic technologies are not there yet but there's some recent transplantation models where primary cells are transformed with EWS fly one or transduced first of all and then and then injected back into a recipient mouse and those mice will get tumors so I, I, I think that there's the potential to make 
animal models and as we get more sophisticated with our targeting of pardon me exactly the right cell at exactly the right dose at exactly the right stage of development i think we will be successful but it's not going to be easy as we've already as we've already seen yeah you know i think it's interesting so so thinking across other disciplines and in cancer and other biology you know for instance we know that uh, MLL mutations are present in many more patients mm -hmm. than actually get leukemia. Yep. And, and we know that if we think about like tumor dormancy from someone who's had a cancer before, there's all these cells that are out there yep. and, and never become yep. tumors, right? And then mm -hmm. at some, at some point in time, for some reason, these tumors get activated. Mm -hmm. And there's some research out there mm -hmm. into mechanisms of how that might happen, but, mm -hmm. I wonder if there's similar developmental mechanisms in Ewing sarcoma where maybe yeah. lots of people have yeah. EWS I, translocations and, I and there's some trigger, yeah. there's some trigger yeah. that makes those grow. Yeah. No, I'm fascinated by that question because I, I suspect, I, I, I don't think leukemia can be alone in that. I think all of us have various different mutant cells that don't cause us any problems, although they're there. And, uh, what, you know, you bring up something that I think about a lot, which is these, these cases of Ewing sarcoma that present, you know, with a, with a relapse five and ten years later and at a distant site. And we say, oh, well, it's a metastatic relapse. But is it? Is it truly a metastatic relapse? Or is that just another dormant cell that took, instead of eight years, took 13 years? We're starting to get the tools where we can answer some of those yeah. questions. It's going to take a little time, yeah. but yeah. we can start answering those. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the, if the, the changes are mainly epigenetic, it's harder to answer than when the changes are genetic, because you can see it's the True. same clone right. with you know, specific, unique mutations. So it might be a little more challenging. Yeah. So can I change the subject a little bit? Sure. You're a woman in science. I am. What kinds of experiences have you had or challenges you've had related to gender? So I've been really lucky in the sense that I've had... I've had male mentors all along the way who've been nothing but supportive for me um, from medical school right on right on through. And in fact, they That's because all Canadians are nice, right? <laughs> 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 Must be a Canadian thing. <laughs> um, but I think, and they've all they they've all they all really encouraged me to to pursue science and, and academic medicine, and, and so I'm grateful to them for that. Having said that, I you know. It does bother me that it's very hard still to see, especially at the higher levels, women as who who can be role models. Um, you know, I um, I'm forever frustrated, even in pediatric and pediatric oncology. Don't get me wrong, we're one of the we're one of the best. I mean, we have a lot of really fantastic senior pediatric oncologists scientists and clinicians who are women and, and can act as role models. But, you know, if you go to the ACR meetings, the, the big science meetings, still invariably it's a, it's a rare woman who's giving the keynote speech. It sort of it stands out when there's a woman there. And I, and I want to see that change. And I think that there's, there's no question that the years when you're building your career and you're, and you're building your um, portfolio and your CV for papers and publications they, they're the years that most people are having kids. And so I think that for, for women who still do the lion's share of, of the child raising and, and care at home, I think that that takes a major toll on, on their careers. And, and it's very, without a really strong mentor and a really strong department chair who's going to 
advocate for you know giving you an extension on your tenure clock and doing all the sort of allowing you to come back part time and you know those sorts of things we if we don't invoke those sorts of opportunities or or make these opportunities available to young women they will continue to just say it's too hard i can't do it yeah so it's almost self fulfilling a mm-hmm. bit so um are there things that you would recommend uh to young trainees in general i mm-hmm. want to know that but also young women in general what they should do look out for how they should ch- make choices mm-hmm. what kind of advice would you give um, so the number one <laughs> Number one thing you can do is marry the right person. Pick, pick, the, pick, pick the right partner. That goes two ways. That, that's, exactly. That's not just for women. That's for. I mean, this is a tough job, and and whoever you end up with, whoever your life partner is, they've got to understand that there's going to be times when you're going to be all in at your job, and that's just the way it's going to have to be. So that's the first thing. Um, and then and then after that, I think. Um, just make sure it continues to be fun and that it's that it continues to be your passion because you're never going to advance in something if it's not if it's really not giving you that burn anymore you know you really need to um, I guess I can say feel the burn now but I think that and, and and sometimes, especially when, you know, if you've got young kids, I don't have any kids myself, so it's definitely been easier for me in, in that regard. But I, but so many of my friends and colleagues, I've watched them with their, and the men and the women, um, that time when your kids are young and, and they need you, you know, you need, you need to be there. But at the same time, you're trying to struggle with this, with this career. And I, and I do, I, I can't, I can't say strongly enough how important it is to surround yourself with, with colleagues and with, mentors and with chairs of departments who are supportive of you because that culture will determine whether or not you're successful, I think. I think institutionally and across institutions as professions, we need to remember that these things are important no matter how we choose to do them and we need to institutionalize methods by which uh, our our female colleagues can succeed in in both Mm -hmm. realms. Yeah, and I and I think you know we're pediatricians, and we we know. I mean, we should intrinsically understand the value of family and and our our lives outside of work. I mean, we see how much it matters to our patients, and 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 then to turn around and not be as supportive of of each other, and it's just it's we gotta we gotta reconcile those things and, and treat each other in the same way that that we would have others treat us. Of course, a, a report that just was published this week that's been making the rounds in the New York Times, etc., looked at medical school, academic medical schools, and I'm not sure if you saw this yet, but looked at the pay structures for mm-hmm. uh, women versus men. When normalized by stage of career and type of work, etc., 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 there was it, it varied, but in almost all specialties there was a, a pay gap. Mm-hmm. And uh, in pediatrics, it was twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So it's still striking that in this yeah. day and age, that yeah. kind of disparity yeah. disparity can exist. Yeah. Um, so and that's just emblematic, I think, of Absolutely. what you're talking about. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Beth, for being here. We wish you the best of luck in in your journey and your career me. and um, in your mentorship, and hope you re- uh, stay having a reputation of. Of being a good one to work for. (laughs) And thank you, Ryan, for being here. I should note that uh, this is your first podcast as a faculty member, not a fellow. Congratulations. 
And Neely, thanks for being here. We are happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions if you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org website. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.